Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 39 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today is 2 Kings chapters 14 through 27 and 2 Chronicles chapters 26 through 28 supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online. If you prefer to listen, all of Dr. Skousen's Old Testament books can now be found on audible.com. Today, we cover chapters 18 through 19, the fall of the Northern Ten Tribes, and the importance of Isaiah's ministry. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! First of all, I want to say just a word about Amos, bless his heart. There was a great little fellow. Um, he was um, of the tribe of Dan, wasn't he? Amos, you remember the prophet Amos, tribe of Dan? See, you can, you can preach false doctrine in this church and get away with it all the time. Where was he from? Where is he from? Where's that? Yeah, he's a little Jew boy. He's from down in Bethlehem, just south of Bethlehem. He's Jewish. Tribe of Judah, what's he doing up in Israel? That's what Amaziah wanted to know. What are you doing here at the king's very special uh, place of worship here, Bethel? You go back on down where you belong. And, and it's kind of interesting. Amos says, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. I was a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me from my flock. And the Lord said to me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And boy, he really gave it to him. Now thou sayest, Amaziah, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. And thus saith the Lord unto you, my good friend, Thy wife shall become a harlot in the city. And thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by the line, by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, meaning you're going to end up in a heathen nation. And Israel shall surely go into captivity forth from this land. And he said that it would be beyond Damascus. Well, anybody knows that Damascus is right there. What's beyond Damascus? Syria, a terrible capital of the people of Nineveh. So, very clear. And then, of course, Hosea comes along and says, it is Assyria. I'm not going to say to beyond Damasc Damascus. I put it on the record. We hang together. Uh, now, there are two or three things that he said in connection with um, his prophesying that I want to mention. When Paul Harvey was here, he mentioned that Billy Graham, his minister, had told him that the Jews were going to be driven out of Palestine uh, once more, that it is not really their land anymore. And... Um, so we said to Paul, now, that's not the way it's going to be. They are there to stay. Really? Yeah. Well, doesn't the Bible say they're going to be driven out again? It says just the opposite. Where? Amos. And the Book of Mormon. And the Doctrine and Covenants. <laughs> they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them. Once they return again, that's it. Let's see, there was one other thing, maybe. I guess that's enough. But anyway, do you, you remember where he came from now? Now, there's some that aren't here today, unfortunately. There's some on tour, and then there's some, the spring weather got them. 
just a few, but there are some. And they're going to think this is a technical examination. But when you attend all the classes and listen to what I emphasize, you'll find every one of the things I've emphasized in class, or at least everything that's in the examination, has been emphasized in class. All you have to do is just kind of note what we ask about. Because you can't take this whole book away. There are just way too many names and, and so forth. So um, I try to emphasize things that you ought to be pretty familiar with. On top of your head, you ought to remember Amos, little Jew boy from down in Bethlehem. He's down there taking care of uh, sycamore fruit and a bunch of sheep, and all of a sudden he's told to go up to the big, sophisticated, wealthy people up north and tell them they'd better get with it because they're just about to be destroyed. Now, when were the Jews and Levites divided off from, the, from our ancestors, the ten tribes? What was that famous year? When were they divided into two kingdoms? 922? 922. You sure? I'd remember that if I were you. 922. Don't forget that one. Just put that in your brain and hold it there. Division of the kingdoms, 922. Most of your chronologies, including your missionary handbook, will give it to you at 937. But that was put in there way back in the 1920s and is now obsolete. And what I do is to watch the scientists that are getting closest to 600 B.C. for the first year of the King Zedekiah. And uh, see, they're the ones that are getting close. That's the nodal date that we're sure of. Because the Book of Mormon says it was 600 B.C. for the first year of Zedekiah. Now, this is the very latest chronology that I've used in this book. And these are the people that now have the first year of the reign of King Zedekiah uh, at 597 to 598 B.C. They're just two years off which, as you could see, was pretty good for scientists. It really is, because they're just using rocks and putting a lot of things together. And so their chronology is based on, they're within about two years of being right where the Book of Mormon says that that date should be. And they've figured everything else in terms of that, so that's the one I've used here. Okay? Now, if we get some better information, have to pull it down to uh, 920. You, you won't feel we've apostatized, will you? Okay. Because this chronology is a little bit a little bit that way. 922 is the date we now memorize. Now, they, they were divided as a kingdom until they were carried off, in the northern kingdom were carried off by Syria, Assyria. When were they carried off? 721, 201 years later. Actually, 200 years afterwards they were being carried off, but it was completed 201 years. So if you just remember 200, 922, you got it. Oh, okay. Assyria is across the Euphrates. Syria is on this side. Okay? Assyria is across the Euphrates River. Now, a word about Hosea. Once or twice our Heavenly Father has said, or his son has said, I want you to know what it's like to be a God. You'd like to be a God? All right. Just want you to know part of what it's like to be a God. And to have to, to labor, as we've done over and over again with different families as we've brought them through the second estate. Just want you to know what a travail it is. It, it's, you have the fullness of joy when you reach Godhood status. But nevertheless, you have emotions and feelings and sorrows and such great hopes that are dashed to pieces. And so he said, I just want you to know about it. Who was one, besides Hosea, who was one of the people that our Heavenly Father actually shared in a finite way his only feelings. 
Yes. Now, you wouldn't know that if it weren't for the Book of Mormon. You would suspect that Heavenly Father did that to Abraham so that he'd know how the Father felt at the night of Gethsemane. But the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi specifically says that that was designed to help Abraham, at least one member of our human family, understand what it's like to be an Elohim. And to hear a, a son pleading with you, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take this cup from me. And he had to send an angel to say that it couldn't be done unless we lost this whole family. And then he said, very well, I will be done. I will drink the cup. And then in resolution he went through, but immediately his capillary system of his own body couldn't hold the bloodstream. And the blood broke loose into the sweat glands and came right out onto the surface of his skin. So it was a real traumatic hour. Now Hosea was told to do something that would help him understand what it's like for Jehovah and his father to have these brilliant spirits of the pre-existence, all of whom were called Israel in the pre-existence because of their valiancy, get down here on the earth and participate in uh, fertility cults and apostasy and the burning of their children as sacrifices. Just terrible. And then when they get in a calamity and they're about to be destroyed by the Egyptians or the Assyrians or somebody, they come back and say, Father, we're home. We love you. We're back. Save us. So he said, I want you just to know what that's like. To have had a wife and have her abandon you and then come back. And this goes over and over and over again, century after century. So the first wife that he told him to marry, to just give him an idea of what it's like to, to have to have your hopes identified with something less than is worthy, really, of, of the companionship of God. Whom was he told to marry? First time. A, a, an apostate commoner. Just a, a very ordinary common person uh, right out of the ranks of the apostates, the the people of the... Um, take a wife of the whoredoms, and um, that's... Uh, thought to mean departing from those who have departed from the Lord. She had she gave him three children, two sons and a daughter, and then the Lord said, Now go buy a wife. And that's what the Savior does for Israel with his atonement. He actually has purchased it. Who was she? She was an impure woman. And he, he said, Now you enter into the kind of covenant with her that I do with Israel all the time. I want, you, I want the same kind of a covenant. And so he did. Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. And thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. And the Lord has said that over and over again to Israel. Now Hosea um, said what, uh, there are about four prophets in here that say the same thing. God's purpose is not to have blood sacrifices, but to have what? What's the magic word that means the difference between the celestial kingdom and the telestial kingdom? One word. Obedience. That's the difference between the chosen people and the unchosen people. Therefore, it is not sacrifices and new moons and uh, all of this falderall that is part of ritual. God himself commanded it, but there is no merit in it of itself. The ritual can be changed. Uh, all kinds of uh, different things could be used. 
The main thing is to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit and say to our Heavenly Father, I want to do what you want me to do. You just tell me what to do. If you want uh, animals burned, why, we'll burn them. Like Father Adam, when the angel said, why are you, what are you burning your calves for on this altar? And what did he say? I know not. Save the Lord commanded me. He said to do it, and I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Now the Lord says, if you'll do that for me, then I can lift you to Godhead, Godhood. That's all I need from you is a willingness to follow me and be with me because there are no shortcuts to where you've got to go, and I'll tell you how to get there. If you'll just love me and trust me and stay with me. I don't want you groveling in the dirt. That's no satisfaction to me. I only want you to worship me so that you will follow me and stay with me so I can make you equal with me in power and in glory, be my heir, be my son, and I can put you at my right hand and introduce you to the intelligences of the universe proudly as one of my own. That's all I'm asking of you. I'm not asking you to be a slave. I don't want you to grovel around. That's not what I ask for in worship. And so you have uh, Amos and Hosea and uh, Micah and several of them emphasizing that the important thing is not sacrifice, but obedience. Now, the, if people were so vicious in Hosea's day. They were rich, uh, you see. They'd had a great success, political su success. They'd conquered everything from here down to here under Jeroboam II. But um, they're, uh, they're like troops of robbers in the land. Even the priests are indulging in murder for gain. And uh, people are committing all kinds of lewdness so uh, they really were wicked. Now Hosea said, therefore you're going to be carried away and taken into bondage in what country? Syria? Assyria. And um, all your treasures are going to be lost. And then Hosea says, I want you to remember something, that you're going to die real soon. All of you are going to die. Your only hope and redemption is in the Lord. And remember, there is no opportunity after this life to repent. Repentance is hidden before the eyes of God. Now, you, it's so important that you understand that doctrine and will be able to explain it if necessary. What does it mean that when it says after the resurrection, repentance is hidden before mine eyes? Is there a principle of repentance in heaven? You mean if I do something wrong up in heaven, I can't feel badly about it? I can feel badly about it, all right. Can I fight my way back up? Couldn't I work back up again? But I got to do it on my own. Get everybody's confidence again and say to the intelligence, I'm sorry, that was a boo-boo, real bad one. Sorry. I'm going to work this one out. Pretty soon they say, all right, we'll support you now. Then I'm back, aren't I? But in heaven, that's where celestial law is, See, everything, uh, they don't look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. That means disobedience. With the least degree of allowance. All right, so I disobey. What happens to me? All the intelligences back off. All of a sudden, I, 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 I'm powerless and I'm, I'm in no position to accomplish anything. I said, wait, wait, hold the phone. I'm sorry. My problem. I'm sorry I did it. I'm going to work myself back. Can I, can, can I blot out that sin? Can I say in the name of the Savior, please forgive me? Not there. Now, that's important to understand. That's the doctrine. It's a great privilege to be here in the earth where you can learn the difference between good and evil and have it blotted out when you make a mistake. But don't make too many mistakes. They scar. Now, all of us make enough mistakes inadvertently. And when we do it deliberately, that's, the, that's a rebellious spirit. 
The Lord can forgive one offense easier than he can some others because mercy cannot rob justice. And the Savior has to be able to say to the intelligences of the universe and the powers that be, the brother so-and-so did all that he could. And now, will you let him come? He couldn't have done any more. Now, for the sake of my suffering, will you let him come the rest of the way? If you haven't done all that you can, then what happens? Same principle. You pay to the othermost farthing. And Lucifer has claim on you until you do. Now that's, that's how important this doctrine of repentance and blotting out is. Now we have our people make some serious mistakes. And this generation is under terrific pressure to make uh, some of the worst mistakes. And some are making them. And we can help them somewhat. And, and we do everything that we can to help one another and sustain one another. But... Their terrible scars go with these serious mistakes. But they still, it still doesn't mean everything's lost, but it means it's, that we've been really hurt. So anyway, I just want you to be sure that you understand that doctrine. Now in 753, Jeroboam dies. Uh, then in the year, gradually we get down to the year when the Assyrians start moving out. Now... Uh, the Assyrians actually were in a state of power for about 300 years. They were much older than that, actually. They used to be subject to the Babylonians back uh, shortly after the flood. It's a very old city. Uh, it's as far back as Nimrod, you see, uh, in the days of Abraham. So that's a very old city. They've been a great power. But then they went down to practically nothing. Now they've been right. They've risen again, and they've been extremely cruel and vicious. And after that 40 years, you remember, of repentance, during which time Jeroboam was able to move clear up to here. He got real brave. Okay, now the Assyrians start moving out again. And not only to take all this back, they're headed, they, they want to go right down to and take Egypt. In the process of getting down and taking Egypt, they, they just start to move out here a little bit. And it scares the wits out of the Assyrians and the northern ten tribes. So they come down here to the king of, of Judah, whose name is Ahaz. And I don't want you to forget that name. That's one you should remember. Some of these names... Uh, come in and out like a revolving door. And I only ask you about the ones that are important. Ahaz is one of them. And he was the king who received the messianic message. That's why we remember him. And uh, Ahaz was a wicked, a very wicked king who had a very righteous father and a very righteous grandfather. But he himself is very wicked. He's an idolater. He's even burned his own children down in Hinnom Valley. And when Judah and, uh, excuse me, when the ten tribes and Syria try to get him to join them to fight the Assyrians, he says, no, I won't join you. All right, they said, then we're going to take you. We'll teach you a lesson. You get on our side or take the consequences. So that's the threat. All of a sudden, Isaiah appears to Ahaz there at the meeting place near Gihon Spring and says, hear the word of the Lord God Jehovah in whom you do not believe. Thou must not provoke the king of Syrian or the king of Judah by arming and mobilizing, for God will take care of both of them and they will not fight you unless you arm. But if you arm, they'll come down and there'll be great devastation for the sake of the righteous God has warned you. And because you do not believe in God nor his prophets, God has authorized me to offer you any sign that you might wish in order that you know that this comes with authority from heaven. And Ahaz contemptuously said, Oh, I wouldn't think of what? Oh, I wouldn't tempt God, whom I don't believe in. 
so um, Isaiah got desperate and he finally said, then I'm going to give you a sign on my own volition. And I say unto you that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And Ahaz said in effect, well, that's nice. See you later. Went on his way. Now, this wasn't going to be fulfilled and actually be a sign for many centuries. So God decided to give Israel, as many as would listen, a sign that would be fulfilled in a very short period of time. And so he said to Isaiah, get two of the most respected men as witnesses and watch, have them watch you record that you are going to have a son through your wife, who is a prophetess, and that before that son is weaned, those two countries will have been demolished and taken care of. And so the two witnesses were brought in. Isaiah recorded the prophecy, and then the prophetess conceived. Now remember, his wife was a prophetess. I'd remember that if I were you. Very righteous woman, not like the wives of Hosea. Uh, Isaiah doesn't have to go through this experience. And she bore him two sons, each one of which had a, a prophetic name. And the one that was born on this occasion was not weaned before Assyria had come out and wiped out both of these nations, carried all of our ancestors away as prisoners. Now, um, if you are an art major and you want to do biblical research before you do your painting, that is, if you want to do biblical painting, be sure and do your research before you paint. One of the most beautiful paintings that we have in the Information Center shows an aged Isaiah writing in a book with two very dignified men watching him in great solemnity. And up above their heads, in a cloud effect, is a picture of what? Of the Savior and of Mary and of Joseph. Is that what Isaiah was writing in the book? What, what the artist had in mind is in the previous chapter. He's missed it by a whole chapter. And you don't know hardly who to tell about it. Because somebody's going to go to the information center one of these days who knows his Old Testament. And you're going to say, what does that picture represent? Oh, that's Isaiah predicting the uh, coming of the Savior. Well, he said that to Ahaz, the king of Judah. This thing that he wrote in a book is about his own son. That's the next chapter. You Mormons, don't you read your Bible? Is that something? So, uh, I don't, it's such a beautiful picture. But what we need is a picture of Isaiah standing there talking to Ahaz, saying, Behold, a virgin, this sign I give unto you. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Then you could put that up there, above their head. I, d I don't know whether they are or not. Think they are, Kurt? Anyway, it's there, and it's 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 on the uh, it's put on the um, Ensign magazine, and everybody loves it because it's the messianic prophecy. There's only one thing wrong: uh, that wasn't when the messianic prophecy was given. But, but um, anyway, maybe we can work that out somehow, eventually. So, in any event, if you are an art major. Will you please do your research before you... The artists that I have doing my Book of Mormon illustrations come over and see me five or six times before they finally structure the material. And I have used their pencil drawings because they reproduce better in the book uh, before they go to their colored material. 
but um, they, they've done everything they could to be absolutely uh, accurate on, uh, on what they've done, everything that they could get from other people, etc. And then they bring over the, what they think will be about right, and, and they've, they've captured it about as well as any of our modern artists. And then when they come out in their colored paintings, I'm sure they're going to be beautiful. Um, now, one other thought. Imagine what it would have been if Isaiah had said to Ahaz, I want to give you a sign, something very remarkable. A young woman is going to conceive and have a son. His name will be Emmanuel. Ahaz might have said, well, yeah, we do this all the time. <laughs> now, the modern interpreter's Bible commentary insists that Jesus was an illegitimate child. And that wherever it uses the word virgin, it ought to just simply say a young woman of marriageable age. The ironclad refutation of that is this that we've just discussed. Because it's Isaiah's reference to a virgin conceiving that makes it a sign. And the Septuagint version written by the Jews themselves, 300 BC, says virgin. The Book of Mormon says virgin, which shows that these people who want to make, uh, make out Mary to have been uh, guilty of immorality, historically out of focus. Their own Bible refutes them. So will you kind of remember that if it ever comes up? That the word is not a young woman of marriageable age. The word is virgin. Randy. Well, no, it's the, the King James Virgin says, uh, the King James Virgin says virgin. <laughs> King James Version says virgin. It's the modern interpreters the revised version. There are about ten new versions, and they all call her just a young woman, not a virgin. Okay. <clears throat> now, let me j just show you what, what happens here to Assyria. When Assyria came storming out finally, she did clean up both of these nations. She did gobble up in the year, what? 721, all of the northern tribes, and she took them up here between the Caspian and the Black Sea. And then they drifted on up into the steppes of Russia, and most of them disappeared. All except a little fragment of them disappeared. Now, after a hundred years, these people are up here about a hundred years, when all of a sudden the Babylonians combined with the Medes, and they came up here in the year 612, and they knocked out Nineveh. And the Assyrians began to collapse. They then rushed over to Haran and regrouped. And we're getting ready for another battle. Uh, just a question of time, and up from Egypt comes the old enemy of the Assyrians to rescue them. They get up here to about Megiddo, and uh, King Josiah stands in their way, says, you shall not pass. Necho II of the Pharaoh of Egypt says, look, we have nothing against you. You are one of our best customers. We, we do nice, everything, but I must go up and join the Assyrians against the Babylonians. No, Josiah said, those wicked people must be allowed to fall. They've been the terror of the whole basin. We must let them fall. Necho II said, well, I hate Assyrians too, but I hate Babylonians worse. So out of the way, we pass. And um, Josiah got in his way. So Josiah was killed, 609 B.C. And up uh, the Egyptians went. They joined them there. And the final battle was fought at Carchemish. In 605, the Egyptians and the Assyrians absolutely defeated, chased back here, and on the way down, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar grabbed off a hunk of Jerusalem, uh, took a few things out of the temple, 
and then moved on down. I couldn't conquer them, so then went back home temporarily. Took with them a few Jews to uh, educate and make good Babylonian administrators out of. A little fellow named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. See, that was about 604 B.C. And uh, the Babylonians put a king over here, and the rascal went and conspired with the Egyptians. Stopped sending tribute, so in 600 B.C., over comes Nebuchadnezzar, kills the king, who was the son of Josiah, but a wicked man, put on his 21-year-old brother named Zedekiah. And said, now Zedekiah, pay attention, pay tribute to me, everything will be all right. He took back 10,000 of the top artisans of Jerusalem, including a young fellow, 30 years old, uh, 25 years old, who went back to Babylon with the others, and after five years he was called to be a prophet. His name was Ezekiel. So you got Daniel over here, by that time, the prime minister under Nebuchadnezzar, the three mayors of Babylon, the city of Babylon, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And believe me, God really had it set up for the Jews. And Jeremiah is saying to King Zedekiah, be subject to Nebuchadnezzar and live. This is the word of the Lord God. Everything has been set up. Zedekiah says, I like Egyptians. All right, Jeremiah says, down comes the city. You're going to be absolutely destroyed. And when that word got out by, there was this, this businessman here in town who knew they'd been very wicked but wanted to do something about it, so he went out and prayed to the Lord on their behalf. He wasn't a prophet or anything, just a member of the Rotary Club there in, in Jerusalem. <laughs> and was he astonished when God called him to be a prophet, told him to warn the people, and then head out fast for America. And that was Lehi. See where the Book of Mormon opens? And once you have this background, all of a sudden the Book of Mormon really bristles. It just comes to life with excitement. Okay, what happened to our relatives went up here? We now have part of their history, at least our ancestors. The ten tribes disappeared. Um, we don't know whether they're even on this planet anymore. Our Heavenly Father has a habit sometimes of taking whole populations elsewhere temporarily. Uh, city of Enoch, uh, city of Salem, and so forth. Won't be at all surprising to me if they're elsewhere. We just don't know. Anyway, he speaks of the Jews as dispersed. And the ten tribes as scattered, right? Okay, in any event, he, he differentiates the what happened to them. Now, these people, our ancestors here, broke off from the ten tribes before they were taken and lost. And they stayed right there between the Caspian and the Black Sea till 100 B.C. And uh, then their, their general, or rather their, their leader, whose name was Odin, uh, led them up through Russia and across Germany and into Jutland, which is now part of Denmark. It's right up there in the northwest corner of Europe. And then they started fussing among themselves, and they divided into Engels. Their names were Yinglings. They were called Yinglings. That was their name. And they divided into Engels, Saxons, Danes, Norwegians, Swedes, and Normans. They're all the same people. In 300 AD, the, the Yinglings, or Engels, the first part, the first branch of them, went into England and conquered the Celts, who had been under the Romans. The Ro Romans, of course, they've disintegrated now. They're no longer strong in Britain. And so the Celts there, they're kind of having a, having a ball, and uh, they occupy the whole island. In come the Yinglings and conquer them. Then the Saxons, their cousins, came in and conquered them. Then the Danes came in and conquered them. And then the Normans came in and conquered the whole bunch in 1066. Those little islands are just saturated with Ephraimite blood. Now, the Normans, you see, are the Norsemen. They settled northern France. And some of the rest of them got down over into Switzerland, some in Germany, 
they, they kind of sprinkled around. And those people produced 99% of the membership of the church during the first 100 years. And that's, those are your ancestors. And over in the library, we have their history. Now, they, the reason we have their history is because they put it in song. They memorized it. Then it was, trans, uh, it was transcribed, that is taken out of the oral song about the 13th century up in Iceland and put in the Norwegian language. Then translated into English, we have the translation over here in the library, called the Saga of the Yinglings. Saga of the Yinglings. So that's, that's all, that all transpires here. Now the man who led them out, whose name was Odin, is worshipped as a god by all of the ancient Scandinavians. Actually, he settled on an island after he had been in Jutland. He just went out to the little island there. It's a lovely island um, called um, Danish missionaries. Odense. It's just easy to remember. Odin. Odense. And it's the island just below the island where Copenhagen is. And then he drifted on up into what's now Sweden. And he set up the capital at Ipsala, just above Stockholm. And that's where he's buried. When you go there today, there are hundreds of mounds, burial mounds, of the ancient Viking kings. Between 800 and 1000 A.D., our ancestors, the Yinglings, conquered all of northern Europe. If they had kept going, they could have had all of Europe. They were in Iceland. They took, uh, uh, they took um, Greenland, and they settled in Newfoundland right here in America, way back in those early days. But then they gave it up and all went home. So it uh, that had to wait for Columbus to come over. Now, the reason they could sail on the, on the high seas, did I ever tell you about this before? They had a special kind of a rock <clears throat> that they have up there. And if you hold that, you find, see, here's the sky all over Cash. You know where the sun is. If you can find where the sun is, why, you can navigate. The point is, find the sun. <clears throat> You've got to get this rock at right angles to the sun, and then it'll change colors. So that's what they did. That's how they'd find the sun during a stormy day. And that's how they could find their way. No other nation dared to go out on the high seas like the Vikings. And that's because they had these rocks. No, no, it's... Um, I have my Book of Mormon text. Uh, it's a technical name, and I, I don't have it on the top of my head. Any questions now about this? Okay, now I just want to ask you a question or two about Isaiah. Uh, because there are two or three things I might ask about him. Um... When, when did Isaiah, when was Isaiah ministering to the people? About 800 B.C.? 600 B.C.? All right, 750 to 700 is close enough. 496 is the latest that, uh, um, is the latest figure, but it's 750 to 700, anywhere in there. That's Isaiah's period. Now, I, he was a very rustic man, wasn't he? Like Amos. No? What was he? Very well educated. Uh, he was from up in Shechem, wasn't he? Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. He's very well educated, and he's from Jerusalem. Wonderful to test false doctrine here. See how far you can get. Um, I do it in priesthood class all the time, and I can go through half the class, and nobody says anything. They take notes even, you know. <laughs> just, just for fun. Then you can go back and straighten. And then they remembered. I found out that people remembered if they've told it wrong sometimes, and they get it straightened out. Um, just to challenge their thinking is what it really does. All right. Um, can you think of um, three or four reasons why it's difficult to read Isaiah? He's a poet. He did the whole book of Isaiah in, in, um, in meter. 
And then he's deliberately obscure because God required it to be, required him to be. He's not allowed to, to tell some things. He knows it, he saw it, but he's not allowed to tell. Like Nephi couldn't tell what would happen to America in 1975 and 1984, etc. The Lord stopped him. Uh, he also uses names of ancient times for modern times. Um, or he uses an obscure reference. He tries to talk about America. They talk about the land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Well, the rivers of Ethiopia are the, are the rivers that drain into the Nile, 4,000 miles up from Cairo. And that's about as far away as you can get that they know anything about. So what, what's the land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia? What's that land? That's America. And they use it several times in the Old Testament, trying to describe America. Um, so he also uses that. Then he has a terrific vocabulary because he's a very learned man. And then he has a tendency to skip. Uh, he'll go down here and he'll be looking at the scene. And he says, you know, that reminds me of what I saw in vision up there. I think I'll write about that for a little while. And he writes about that for a little while. I'll get back to the home folks here. And he writes about that for a little while. But the millennium is going to be great. Oh, that's going to be tremendous. And then meanwhile, we've got these reprobates. And he writes about that. And you've got to be on your toes when you're reading Isaiah. So in the Book of Mormon commentary, I've taken it verse by verse on all the chapters that are in the Book of Isaiah so that you can figure out what he's saying verse by verse. And it's possible to figure it out, but it sure took a lot of work. Now, um, let's see if there's anything else you should know about Isaiah. Comes to mind right off the bat. Um, let's see. Yes, I think, that'll, I think that'll pretty well hold you until Tuesday. Now... Will you hold it just one second? I was asked to do one thing. Right at the front of your book, it talks about uh, the various kings and Jeroboam, you'll remember, and Nadab and Baasha. Zimri, you all remember, that only lasted a week. Omri, of course, you remember. Nahab, you remember. And in the examination, we don't spend a lot of time on, on, on dates nor kings, but so... Um, I'd remember the general sweep of history and, and then the doctrines and the principles that I've emphasized in class. Uh, Elisha, you should be, remember, be able to remember several of the miracles that he accomplished. And um, you remember about Ben-Hadad and Elisha's conversation with him, a few of those things. And it's, it's not really a tough test here. I, 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 I answered it all in about 15 minutes, if I remember correctly. Yeah. The, most of the questions on this exam are the major general questions, not technical ones at all. So I think you should do very well. So I'll see you Tuesday. <laughs>